0: Hello everybody, I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, science fiction, and other stuff. Different sort of vibe for this week's show because we're going to look at the whole issue of fairness and what that word and concept means in relation to certain issues regarding the upcoming Olympic Games in Tokyo. But first, the news of the week and what a week it's been. It's a week where it seems that the Olympics and black women just aren't getting along. At the top, Shakari Richardson, the American sprinter with flashes, speed, and Firestar's hair, set to be the darling of the upcoming Olympics, a 21st century combination of Wilma Rudolph and Flojo. It's not going to happen. Three days ago, her drug test came up positive for THC, and that means a 30-day suspension which knocks her out of the 100 meters for Tokyo and it was determined out of the relay pool as well. Now to her credit, she's taking the hit and looking ahead to next year. She says her goal is a world championship. Next year's world championships will be held in Eugene, Oregon. She said in a tweet, I'm sorry I can't be y'all's Olympic champ this year, but I will be your world champ next year. From the track to the pool, swim caps made the news as the world's governing body for swimming ruled on July 2nd that the sole cap, the creation of black British inventors Michael Chapman and Tux Ahmed Salawuddin, designed to protect black hair during swimming, would not be approved for competition. FINA officials stated that the cap, quote, does not fit the natural form of the head and, quote, To the best knowledge, the athletes competing at international events have never used and neither required caps of such size and configuration. Talk about tone deaf. Now, some of the backstory: The two inventors created the product four years ago as they were taking swim lessons. And they ran into some black women in their swim cast who were struggling with the tighter swim caps which didn't fit their hair very well. Now being conscientious black men, they went back and talked to their mothers, their sisters, their friends. And then they went to the drawing board and developed the product. Now the sole cap has a worldwide following and they were set to have a competitive athlete wear it in competition in Tokyo. It would have been Alice Deering, the first black British woman to represent Team GB in swimming. She's competing in the 10-kilometer open water event in the Olympics in a few weeks' time. Now, on Tuesday, the BBC reported that FINA is kind of walking things back because they took a mound of criticism. A number of swimmers, coaches, fans, and commentators called the governing body out on some of their tone-deaf statements. And yes, the whiteness, it was rather loud. Phoenix says they want to meet the inventors, meet Soul cap representatives and perhaps use the caps at their development and training facilities. Now some of you may think, why did this matter? Well first it's a health issue. Pool chlorine and their associated bleaches damage all hair. But there's a mound of evidence that says that it causes a greater measure of damage to African hair. Also there is the deeper issues of culture. Hair is a cultural tie for many people. And consider representation. It matters. It matters to be in the space as you are. And there is what the swimming pool is represented in history when dealing with race relations. The swimming pool has often been a flashpoint. American history, for example, is filled with incidences where whole towns would rather drain the pools and close the facilities rather than see a black body in them. Such things must be overcome to grow a sport, and it's something that FINA and its member governing bodies have been working to do throughout the world. FINA's early ruling put up a needless and ignorant barrier in a sport that already has many for much of the world. It's hoped that this walk back and this consultation process will bear better fruit. Back on the track, two of the best in the world at 400 meters, will not compete in the event in Tokyo because of the Castor Semenya rule. Namibia's Christine Boma and Beatrice Masilingi, two 18-year-old phenoms who've been blisteringly fast at 400 meters this year, have been ruled ineligible to be in the event by World Athletics for exceeding the limit designated by the governing body's policy on athletes with difference of sexual development. According to their coach, they will instead concentrate on the 200 meters, which are not under the rule. Leading up to this moment, they've been some up-and-comers to watch. Masilingi, in April put up a 49.53 at a meet, and that placed her at number three on the season's best chart. But that was nothing compared to what Mboma did last weekend at Bigotish Poland. 48.8 Five four seconds. It is the best time in the world this season. It is a world junior record and it is the seventh fastest time ever at 400 meters by a woman. But they run into the policy on differences in sexual development, which means they cannot participate in events that are between 400 meters and 1600 meters in distance. Now, a person who fought this policy and won will return to the Olympics for her second straight games. Indian sprinter Duti Chand is confirmed for the 100 meter and 200 meters because of her world athletics rankings in both events. The Times of India reported July 1st that their rankings clinched wildcard spots in the heats for Tokyo. At the Indian Grand Prix meet in Padi India last week she did something pretty good at the hundred meters a new Indian national record and a personal best 11.17 seconds now that was 200 short of the Olympic qualifying mark but due to the revised qualifying procedures because of the COVID pandemic wild cards were available and she claimed two of those from speed on feet to speed on wheels the sweet and the bitter in the Brick Car Series two hours event at Silverstone, round five of the series. Charlie Martin got the start, starting fourth, and held that spot through the first stage, through the dry and the wet. Fell back a little bit, but came back forward to hand off to Jack Fabi at the halfway point, and he came out of the pits and threw the shuffle as the new race leader and held on the rest of the way to win it in an overall victory not so fast the stewards had a look at their pit stops and they said they left just a little bit too early. The Brick Car Series has a mandatory pit stop length rule. They jumped the gun a little bit and had to take on a 34 second penalty. That was enough to drop them to second behind the current series leaders, Christopher Wiesmeil and Richard Morris. But even with the second place, they moved up from fourth to third in the standings. Next race in the series, July 31st, in the Hills and the Trees at Brands Hatch. Oh, and you hear that sound? It means we've got to take a break, pay a few bills, but when we come back, we're going to get deeper into the story of two phenomenal young runners and why they won't be in Tokyo. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. With the official kitten of the transporter room, my dear Kirby, I welcome you back. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and we're going to debut something new this week the transporter spotlight. It's our opportunity to really get into the derm of an issue, pull it apart, and break it down just a little bit more. Now, archaic ideas about women in sport have been around since forever. Consider what the founder of the modern Olympics said. Now Pierre de Coubertin always stated that he never meant women to compete. He said women should be birthing Olympians not being Olympians. Of course it took women in protest staging their own sporting festivals in the 1920s and 1930s to get the Olympic program to open up. Now, chauvinism did find a champion in Avery Brundage, the longtime USOC and IOC president who was also a racist and anti-semite, Nazi sympathizer and a raging sexist. As a 1948 Life magazine profile suggests, quote, "He has always been suspicious of athletic women and still is." His suspicion is that some of them perhaps considerable number of them are men now a lot of people throw around terms such as difference in sexual development in intersex these days but these are nothing new it goes all the way back to the 1930s think of Stella Walsh and Dora Ratchin think of why athletes such as Babe Didrikson and Helen Stevens only competed in the Olympics once because both of them were threatened by brendage with sexual verification testing. And then consider the 1960s. It was the era being considered not female by a group, by a panel of doctors who forced you to strip naked. Also consider Polish sprinter Elwa Klobuskowska. She had records stripped from her. And had to eventually clear her name after being wrongly identified as not female during a sex verification test. In it was also the era where chromosome testing began. That was in 1968. Also consider 1985. Maria Jose Martinez Patino. A Spanish hurdler, was scheduled to race in the World University Games, was subject to verification tests, and because of those tests was thrown out. Spent three years appealing. She did win, but her career was ended. The IOC ended such practices in 1999, but other verification methods continued into the 21st century. Consider the saga of one Santi Sandarajan, Indian middle distance runner silver medalist in the 2006 Asian Games until she was subjected to verification testing. It was determined that she failed the test. The exact quote from IAAF officials was she didn't have characteristics of a woman. That began an ugly period for her including two suicide attempts. Thankfully she lived through them both later became an advocate and later an athletics coach in her native india other methods other rules are brought into place and the scrutiny came with it and that's what led to 2009 and a race at the world championships in berlin the winning time is going to be terrific she comes through 155 155 an amazing performance we'll be hearing a lot more about no doubt hello world Meet 18 year old Castor Semenya, your new 800 meter world champion. But questions were surrounding her. Questions about is she a woman? Because of those questions, she was declared ineligible for 11 months and later reinstated. One of those who witnessed the early vitriol surrounding her was an Australian named Madeline Pate, who raced against Semenya in the heats back in 2009.
1: Experiencing what that environment was like at the time, around um, in 2009 uh, and the kind of uh, viciousness that I saw uh, and just blatant disregard for her as a human being, her as a person um, that I saw in that uh, competition environment in 2009. Um, I think has really stayed with me.
0: In 2011, new rules regarding hyperandrogenism were put into place. The upper limit was set with a number by which some of us may be familiar: 10 nanomoles per liter of serum testosterone. Anyone above that is required to take hormones to lower that level. And two years later, a different athlete was getting attention. Indian sprinter Duti Chand had a double gold medal performance at the Asian Junior Championships in 2014. She won the 200 meters and was part of India's winning 4x400 meter relay team. She was set to represent her country at the Commonwealth Games that year, but then she was dropped and suspended by India's governing body for track and field, citing the revised international regulations. Chand didn't take it lying down. She fought back against her National Federation and World Athletics to the International Court of Arbitration and Sport, where both governing bodies failed to prove that Chan's natural testosterone gave her an advantage. She won her day in court and in June 2015, the suspension was lifted. The results of her case were also seen in Rio in 2016. It's going to have to peel off the back of Niensaba shortly. She does that now. She's normally got a devastating kick when she goes, and go she does. And she goes from two meters behind to two meters in front of the top of the lane. Semenya running for gold now in front of Niansaba and Bishop and Wambui. But she's left the others in her wake. And Castor Semenya is going to do what most people thought she would do in the 800. And she runs away and wins it brilliantly. In second placing Niansaba. the bronze goes to Wambui in front of Bishop. The podium featured Castor Semenya, South Africa gold. Francine Niansaba of Burundi the Silver, and Margaret Wambui of Kenya got the bronze. Two years after that night in Rio, all three were scrutinized under what we now know as the Castor-Semenya rule. An athlete running in events that are between 400 meters in distance and 1600 meters in distance cannot have more than 5 nanomoles per liter of serum testosterone. Semenya has fought through the rule since then but has lost every appeal. And that takes us to the latest athletes to run afoul of this. Christine Mboma and Beatrice Masalingi 400 meter runners from Namibia. Now where is Namibia? It's on the southwestern coast of of the African continent bordered by South Africa, Botswana and Angola. Now Namibia is still rather new to the Olympics. They sent their first Olympic team in the competition in 1992 in Barcelona. Now we probably remember a certain sprinter named Frankie Fredericks. He is the only Namibian to win an Olympic medal. In fact he's won four in his career. In 1992 and 1996 He was the silver medalist at 100 and 200 meters. Now Fredericks was one of the fastest men of the 1990s and the people he finished behind were a who's who of the fastest of the decade. Linford Christie, Michael Marsh, Donovan Bailey and the great Michael Johnson. Mbamba and Masalingi are part of what is a potential generation of super talent at the 400 and 800. Alongside them are Ating Mu of the United States and 400-meter hurdlers Delilah Muhammad and Sydney McLaughlin, also both American, who could seriously threaten two of the longest-standing records in women's track and field, the 36-year-old 400-meter mark of Marita Cook of the German Democratic Republic and the 38-year-old 800-meter mark of Jarmila Kraktovilova of Czechoslovakia. However, because of the world athletics policy, neither can run the 400 meters in Tokyo. Now what does this rule entail? It calls for a 5 nanomole per liter limit on serum testosterone, and an athlete must first reach and go below that limit and then hold that line for at least 6 months before being cleared to compete in the event specified, and they will be subjected to consistent testing regimens important distinction to point out here we're talking about endogenous testosterone what your body produces naturally not exogenous testosterone something that may be injected in from the outside for health reasons due to therapeutic use exemption or from doping which is illegal now on the surface there are those who say that this particular rule doesn't target anyone But I contend that the optics say different. The vast majority of athletes that run afoul of these shifting regulations have mainly been from South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Black and brown athletes from the Global South. One thing that put the target on the backs of these athletes is success. Now, consider Juti Chand. She was questioned because she did well in a regional competition. And even after she won her case, World Athletics was given additional time to prove otherwise. But they failed to prove otherwise, and Chand was never dragged back into a review of the process, and neither were her events. Now, a common denominator here is also Chand was good in a region, but in the international sense, she wasn't a threat. She won 10 medals in international competition. Only one of them was gold and outside of an Asian Games competition. That was a gold medal at the 2019 World University Games, which is mostly a mid-level competition now. At that same time, she's improved a great deal at the 100 meters. At Rio in 2016, she was eliminated in her first round heat, with a time of 11.68 seconds. Again, last week, she set an Indian record with 11.17 seconds. Now, Semenya, in contrast, has been running at the front ever since her debut, and she's done well in major competitions, even as the rules continue to shift and change, to the point where they have openly created a rule directly aimed at her and her event. And now it seems we're seeing perhaps a preemptive strike on the part of world athletics in regards to Mboma and Masalingi. If dominance is the dividing line, I'm curious, for example, why no rule for, say, Edwin Moses? All he did from 1977 to 1987, nine years, nine months, and nine days. Is when every time he got on the track to do the 400 meter hurdles. Now that covered 122 straight races. That included heats, that included finals, that included meets big and small for nearly 10 years. Are we rushing to a judgment because we can? or is this a real threat to fairness? That's the question that we have to look at here. Another thing to consider is what's underneath. Now, there are some people who say that these rules are fair and necessary, and they have been, especially with the apex of Semenya's wins. And certain athletes have openly called for the rule and taken shots at the person who it targets.
1: Pretty much relying on the people at the top starting it out, and like, I think the public can see as well. Sorry, right. like just how how difficult it is um, with the change of rule. But all we can do is give it our best. It's a number of athletes, and could be a growing number, who who have those elevated levels of testosterone. And it's not just about that either. It's the fact that essentially. You have uh, a body that has almost gone through male puberty uh, and is stronger. Physiological differences, bone mass, the strength, not having to deal with periods, not having to worry about um, managing your menstrual cycle around competitions.
0: Now notice what's being said and what's being implied. In some ways, there are certain overtones in regard to whom we consider a woman and many voices inside and outside the african diaspora are noticing in south africa for example many throughout what was once an apartheid nation from all sides of race and class are rallying around semenia we believe that this is tantamount to modernizing barbarism and is indeed an attempt at civilizing cruelty as well as making discriminatory practices acceptable in a world that should be steeped in a human rights culture and we need to do right by her to stop this practice of persecution and body shaming this is a case of clear racism where if you are you are different color in particular black and you happen to excel in something it's because of the color of your skin or genetic makeup, and there must be a scientific excuse to try and dumb down your successes. And such solidarity is extending to these young Namibians as well. We, as Africans and African nations, must stand up. That is what I will uh, I will uh, encourage. We must stand up. It's not just here in Namibia around. These fights are being fought somewhere. The fights are outside there, in the Europe and there, and we must get our people, AU, Africa as a whole, must get our people in the, those positions so that we can fight for our athletes. At the center is the perceived imposition of white standards of womanhood, femininity and humanity. Now these things have been hardwired by centuries of colonialism which is bolstered by consistent themes that can be seen as anti-blackness within literature, media, and even scientific discourse in regards to what bodies and body types we consider womanly, and/or feminine. Now, earlier we mentioned an Australian middle-distance runner named Madeline Pape. Pape competed in an Olympics for a native Australia, and in 2009, won the World University Games gold medal at 800 meters. She's also known as Dr. Madeleine Pate, PhD these days. Most recently she was a research fellow at the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. Now, That's just down the road from the headquarters of the IOC. Much of her research and work has focused on the intersections of gender, sex, sport, and society. And she focuses in on a number of these perceptions
1: when i use the term normatively bodied normatively bodied women i'm talking about women who aren't be women whose bodies aren't questioned because they appear to align with normative expectations of what the female body is so but that of course as you say is a pretty slippery um idea right and i think that's what's for me is interesting sociologically is how that line actually gets drawn there are a whole lot of things that people resources and uh, other decisions that people need to make in order to decide whether or not you do fit in this normatively bodied category or not. Um, Like Katie Ledecky, she fits for some reason in this normatively bodied category, um, even though she's clearly um, been uh, an unbelievably dominant athlete and far more dominant than Castor Semenya, for example. It's not a straightforward process. It's very messy, and it intersects with ideas about sexuality, ideas about race uh, as well, and um, the uh, that connection also between race and nation. Um, you know, we have this hugely disproportionate focus on um, women from from Sub-Saharan Africa in the case of track and field, and women with high testosterone. So that history of colonialism also matters.
0: Now, hearing what you just heard we have to consider what I see as a major misconception that's getting out into the atmosphere. It's being carried out by some in the press and many of you in social media. It's a false comparison. It's erroneous and it's inaccurate. It is a comparison that some are trying to make between Mabona and Masalinghe not being able to compete And New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard, poised to be the first transgender woman to compete in an individual Olympic event, being allowed to compete. I've read this a lot on a lot of social media feeds, that these black Africans are getting the shaft for this privileged white transgender woman. And a good number of you are not referring to Laurel Hubbard in that manner. Some of you are being downright transphobic about it. To those who try and make this comparison, verily I say unto you, don't fall for that okey-doke. You're dealing with two completely different regulatory and competitive realities. The processes being used against Mabona and Masalinge in a broad sense are very similar to the ones that some are attempting to use to negate Hubbard Chelsea Wolf and many other transgender women athletes. Such hearsay and fear that's being generated is being used to affect legal consequences for women far beyond these arenas of sport be they transgender or cisgender. It also must be pointed out that none of the athletes that are falling under the Castor Semenya rule are transgender. Some maybe intersex, but with a few exceptions that have been publicized it is reckless and it's journalistically unsound to speculate on any medical condition leaking such news or making such speculation is a violation of individual human rights and privacy now there are those who say fine maybe we should give them a different division, maybe let them compete in the male division, make the men's an open division. And there are others who say, well, you know, I support them, but not in this instance, or I have full support for their right to be who they are, but in this instance, not so much. Let's consider what a noted activist and consultant has to say. It's this idea of um, inclusiveness means You can be in my surroundings, but you can't really do anything, right? Like, I've seen so many comments on on social media of like, well, I support them, quote unquote, I just don't want them playing with my daughter. Now, Jen Fry's touching on a very important point. These are significant human rights questions. The fourth principle of Olympism says that the practice of sport is a human right the Human Rights Council has called for member states to openly challenge these rules, challenge especially where they breach the human rights of the individual athletes. In my mind rules such as the Castor Semenya rule is Avery Brundage revisited. This boils down for me to how we see bodies, how we see people, and how we see humanity. I'm very concerned with the subtle dehumanization I'm seeing in the discourse on this issue, even among officials such as the head of world athletics, Sebastian Coe, himself a former athlete and a former great athlete. I'm seeing this subtle dehumanization in the actions and words. Of officials of the press and some in the scientific community as well now some will try and say that oh there's no racism here there's no misogynoir here there's no transphobia here well being black being trans being a woman being an athlete and being a journalist I categorically disagree. I see it definitively in the ways in which some of these athletes are portrayed by the media, especially by those who are openly seeking to keep them out of the games. Now, when we discuss remedies, I tend to lean towards the thoughts of noted Australian act- athlete and activist Kirsty Miller. Who has often taken to the press, taken to the papers, taken to the radio, TV, and the Twitter sphere to speak her piece. And one thing she says that we definitely need to consider, because it's the reality, by putting forth and outing these women with these policies, you have created a third category that's separate and largely unequal. And by definition, if you have an athlete that you flag with these policies and for these rules, then you have to have a screening process for every athlete who identifies as a woman if you're really standing for fairness. Now, there's a lot about our bodies and ourselves that we're still learning. Now, we all agree on fairness, but... Here's my question. When we say that word, what are we talking about? Well, I can tell you what I think of when I think of fairness in sport. To me, fair comes down to mainly one thing. The only place where you can really control fair is in the basic rules of the contest. Are they the same for every competitor? Since we're talking about the 400 meters, let's look at that. Are the staggers equal so that everybody runs the same distance? Does everybody start at the same time? Does everybody run 400 meters? Is each competitor bound by the rule saying they must stay in their lane? Will each competitor be punished if they breach that rule? Or if they impede another runner? To me, the basic rules and framework Are the only place where you can really control fairness. Now in my mind. This rule. This regulation. Is patently. Unfair. First off because it was used directly. On one person. In an attempt to handicap that person. In a certain manner. Because that person just happened to be. Really good at what they do. And from the global south. In the case of Christine Moboma and Beatrice Mussolini, this rule is being used in a preemptive manner without cause. This is essentially trying to recast the minority report as a documentary, and it's not right. The rule is used without due study or precedent. This rule also has a glaring breach. It gives the appearance of discriminatory practice in how it's been used, who it's been used against, and it doesn't begin to consider the societal factors and those who are subject to those factors without recourse or due voice in building these proceedings. What you have in many ways are the imposition of white Western standards, on cultures that see bodies and see humanity differently and at the same time do representatives of those cultures don't get much of a hand in making these regulations even if that's not necessarily the intention that is the nut result that's the result that people are looking at and that's the result people are seeing but there are those who say still that's fair And I say to them, seeking real solutions and real inclusion is no vice. And using discrimination as a means to achieve fairness will never be virtue. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me this week on the Transporter Room. And if there's something you'd like to see or something you'd like to say about our show, please leave a message at our Twitter page or on our Facebook page. That's our time for the Transporter Room this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper, steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.